0: Hi, I'm Abby Ellsworth. I'm a civilian interviewing law enforcement from around the country. My goal is to tell the real stories of law enforcement, the ones that don't make the news. Joining me is Detective Sergeant Brandon James of the Seattle Police Department, who is about to be Lieutenant Brandon James of the Seattle Police Department. Brandon has been with SPD for 24 years. At the time of this interview, Brandon was the supervisor in the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, also known as ICAC. Prior to that, he's been on many units, including the bike unit, community police team, the anti-crime team, the criminal intelligence unit. He's been a school resource officer, which is the role I have been wanting to discuss since launching this podcast. And he was an undercover detective in narcotics, including investigating both street-level drug dealing with SPD and high-level narcotics investigations with the FBI, with whom he was a task force officer for 10 years he also was with the coast guard investigative service for 8. Before joining law enforcement, Brandon served our country in the air force. Brandon, your resume is so impressive, I can't even capture it. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you for joining me.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Abby. It's truly a pleasure.
0: Oh, uh, thank you. It's a pleasure for me as well. We know each other. We've met. And had had the chance to talk a few times in the past, so I'm really looking forward to this conversation.
1: Absolutely, you know, before we even met, I had listened to your podcast on a, a number of occasions, and I was always impressed with, of course, folks you had on the podcast and just your work highlighting law enforcement. So thank you for everything you're doing.
0: Uh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. SPD means a lot to me, of course, and all law enforcement and the work you do. I you were just good people. I think you are the bee's knees. (laughs) So you've done so many things and we could talk for hours, but one of the things you and I agreed to talk about when we did our pre-interview is your role as school resource officer. I'm very passionate about this role. I've been very upset about the criticism of the role, the schools that have canceled their SRO program, the schools that want officers to think that officers showing up are going to somehow upset and trigger children. And I can't, I don't want to diminish how someone else feels, but to me, it's one of the best ways to build relationships between law enforcement and kids and kids at an important point in their lives when they need to know what law enforcement really is. So go ahead and react to that.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. You know, my time as a school resource officer I think probably some of the most valuable time I've spent, particularly in building those relationships with the community, particularly now in law enforcement, and why it's you know so important to do relational policing. You know, is, is for us in, in law enforcement to build these relationships with the community, and what better ground to do that than in the schools? And we are capturing the young minds of these students and you know, introducing them to law enforcement. It, yes, there has been you know, a lot of criticism about having Seattle police officers in Seattle schools. And it's unfortunate that currently we, we don't have that program. You know, the, the unfortunate side is those officers are hand selected by commanders because of their drive to communicate with kids. I, I think about the officers that we have in those roles now although they are not in the schools they are still doing a lot of the community policing efforts and working with uh, community organizations with youth and and these officers really have the heart to talk with kids and connect with kids and so when you know maybe something happens in a, in a negative light between law enforcement and community that these are the officers that can really reach out and communicate with these children to say hey this is what's going on this is why and you know, offer explanations and and have those conversations because they built those relationships. And it's, it's unfortunate we currently don't have them in the schools. And you know, I think we're, you know, many of us are hoping that we can get those officers back in the schools because those officers really have that heart and have that mindset to do that job very well.
0: So I didn't know that. I, I thought SPD had continued with. Is that a is that a department decision? City Council decision?
1: in terms of not having the officers in the school? Yeah. You know, that is also a decision influenced by the school district um. as to, you know, who they want inside their schools. And so I think there, there's a lot of stakeholders there. I do believe that the Seattle Police Department does want to really get the officers back in the schools. And I know there that is being discussed and, and being worked on, but uh, as we sit today, they those officers aren't, uh, in the school during school hours but like i mentioned you know we are very much engaged in other programs that these youth are in and out of in the communities and so maybe not necessarily uh, during the school hours but after school programs and other internship programs uh, youth police athletic leagues and so you know we're still doing that work
0: well and i know it's important for officers to interact with kids When officers are not in uniform, but I I, I take offense to this idea that a uniform and a badge and a gun is something that children, young people, should not see. But isn't it because it isn't it an opportunity to say, "Hey, here's why I have this equipment. Here's what this is for." To diminish the fear, if there's fear, yeah,
1: absolutely. When I was a school officer, you know, of course I wear my uniform, and of course I'd get lots of questions from kids. But the kids, they they knew Officer James, and they knew that you know, I was a, a friendly face. And if they had questions about, you know, whatever was on my uniform, and I got those questions quite a bit, I could take that time to. Help them understand. This is a police radio. These are the handcuffs. This is a pepper spray. This is the ammunition. This is the firearm. And of course, they, you know, I'd get questions. Uh, Officer James, can I hold your your gun? I'm like, no,
0: <laughs> then, not so much. <laughs>
1: yeah, right. You, you have an opportunity to really talk about that kind of stuff. You know, in terms of okay, what what's appropriate? And not only can you not hold my firearm, but now here's an opportunity to say, you know, what would you do if you ever saw a firearm? You know, if you were out playing on a playground and you saw a firearm, would you pick it up or would you call a parent or a teacher or an adult to come by and ultimately get the police there? It's unfortunate we don't have that. And that's why, because we have those connections with those kids to really have those conversations. And in addition to that, when I was a school officer, I would take one day a week or maybe one or two days a week and I would dress down. I would come in, in my Jordan outfit and Jordans and, and I would just be a, a normal guy. I mean, everybody knew that it was still officer James, but they also got to see me out of uniform. And that was really powerful too, because right. we got to see officer James just as a normal guy. It looked like their brother, their uncle, their dad. And so then I would play basketball with them during lunch and you know, I was doing middle school and high school, and so particularly at the middle schools, they still had some sort of activity period, and so they just got to see Officer James in, in normal sweats and just out playing with the kids, and it, that was powerful as
0: well. All right. Well, tell me, you know, back in the good old days when in, <laughs> you got to be an SRO, what was typical? Are you dealing with kids who have behavioral problems or are you dealing with kids who maybe are coming to you saying my home life is bad what are some stories what are some
1: yeah we were we were dealing with all of that all of the above and that's why the school officer is not only closely working and engaging with this with the school kids but they're also dealing with the school staff and the counselors and the administrators and the teachers you know even so much so as when I was doing it when I was at Meany Middle School in the Central District, there was a teacher that you know, I became really good friends with, and she really believed in the school officer program. So she really embraced having me in her classrooms and around her different programs. And you know, she had identified a couple of kids. And at that time, they were I think seventh grade, and it was a, a boy and a girl who had come from rough family lives and. You know, some broken home situations, you know, some addictions in the homes, and, and uh, we, we really kind of just took them in and as, as our own kids, uh, uh, even in, to the point where as these two young kids went into high school, uh, both the teacher and I would engage uh, with these kids you know, through high school. And the girl, she went off and played uh, division one basketball. And, and she was, you know, she went on to be what we would call successful and doing well. The young man, he had some other challenges in life, you know, health challenges and home challenges. And even at some point after high school, I still stayed engaged with him. And and he was going to Seattle Central Community College. And he's like, hey, Brandon, you know, it's like, I'm running short on money. I really want to continue going to college. And and I said, "Hey, bud. Of course, I've got you." And just because of building those relationships, and of course, and those friendships, you know, I was like a big uncle to him at that point. Even his family was like, you know, I would come by the house, and like, "Oh, Officer James." But over the years, I was Brandon. I was part of the family and helping getting him through college. Once again, it's just those relationships that you build that would not have happened had it not been for the school officer program.
0: Now, I know you mentioned that they lived with you at some point. Is that right?
1: Yeah, they did. So, okay. kind of funny story to continue that. The teacher and I, we, we did start dating. Um, <laughs> okay. And then we, we moved in together. And you know, so, while her and I were building our personal relationship, you know, at different points, you know, these young men and women had moved in with us and and just helping them out here and there. So uh and that was, you know, years and years after uh when we met them as as middle schoolers, but still it was just once again, just supporting these kids because of the relationships that we build with them.
0: And I noted you're being modest, but you did pay for a large portion of his <laughs> education, right?
1: Yes, I did. And for me, it's, I don't think it's uh, about me and in the dollar amount that I spent or the effort it took. It's for me, just an opportunity to help a young person succeed. And it's, you know, because I had mentors, well, in the police department and, and others through life who, you know, some of the challenges I had coming up that this was an opportunity for me to give back and to help this young man. And so dollar amounts, you know, to me, it's just money, We'll make money out. That's not a problem. But that time, those connections you make, you know, that's invaluable.
0: And, you know, not every school resource officer has to adopt the children <laughs> that in the school. But did you have conversations like and I think you touched on this, but, you know, Officer James, I understand police officers a little better now or I'm a little less afraid or. You're shaking your head. Yes.
1: Absolutely. I mean, yes. (laughs) I mean, of course, because in in, in really to answer that question, I would have to, you know, move forward in time from being a school officer. And sometimes it wasn't, it wasn't those conversations I would have right then and there. It was years later that it'd be realized where i would run into kids.
0: I was going to ask. Yeah.
1: You know, in high school and after high school and, you know, just in the community, in the central district, and they'd be like, officer James, you know, you, know, you were so awesome yeah you know, we loved you, you know, and it was it was so cool having you inside the, the class or they would be like oh, you remember when we beat you on playing basketball and you know, that kind of stuff and you know it's it, it's clear that well at least to me personally that we, sh- we should have these outstanding officers in the schools because once again these are hand selected you know it's just using your your personal attributes to connect those kids.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I'll get off my soapbox in a minute, but it's when you have the climate we're in right now and all this hatred toward law enforcement, and there is a gap, a deficit of information, they're getting only negative information, whether that's from the media, or sometimes parents, I mean, there's legacy, Mm -hmm. there's some hatred, go ahead.
1: Yeah, I would say to that is, yes, I mean, currently, The information that people are receiving, typically on social media. I mean, yeah, especially our kids. We know they're on their phones, they're on social media, and there's a lot of rhetoric, anti-law enforcement rhetoric. But yeah, within the community, particularly Black and Brown communities, you know, is this long-standing lack of trust within law enforcement. There's a lot of discussion about that. There's generational trauma as as a result of that. Right. And you know, this is an opportunity. Just one opportunity for police departments to connect with the community to further explain and to build those bridges. It's just a, another way to really connect with those kids. And so they understand that the police are not the enemy and we are here, but the, I, mean, I believe the police are part of the community, right? We always have this kind of division that the police and the community is different. Well, no, the police are the community. I'm from Seattle and I wanna see that the community thrives. And I want to see that the police department thrives, but to do that, we have to all work together. You
0: say generational trauma. Is that what you said? Yes. What is that? I think I know what he means. What do you mean?
1: You know, I mean that we talk about kids' parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles, particularly in, uh, in well, the African-American community is that the older generations had experiences with law enforcement. And oftentimes those are negative experiences with law enforcement. And I understand it. I've been in law enforcement 20-something years. I got into law enforcement because, well, not just because, but as a larger portion because I realized that there's a a different way to approach situations. And I grew up in Southwest Seattle, Burien, uh, White Center, Des Moines, all through there. And I remember interfacing with law enforcement, particularly uh, in, in Seattle.
0: We should add that you're African-American because my, my, my <laughs> listeners can't see you. Yes, yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. So I am also
1: African-American. I mix black and white. As, as a kid, I just remember interfacing with law enforcement in not so positive ways. But then I had opportunities to interact with law enforcement at my mom's job at the Kingdom. And, you know, it was my mom and these officers said, hey, you know, if you're interested in this and you, you clearly you're passionate about the concerns you, you have about law enforcement interaction, we encourage you. And my mom said, I encourage you, hey, don't just sit on the sidelines and, and complain about it. Get on the field and, and join the game. And so that was one of my driving motivators to become a police officer.
0: Is that the primary reason you became a police officer or were there other reasons?
1: Oh, you know, there, there was a variety of reasons. Yes, those conversations that I had uh, with those law enforcement officers that are working off-duty at the kingdom were a big driving force. And some of those conversations were about, you know, some of the issues that, and questions I had about, hey, why do police do this? Why do they do that? And those sorts of things. But then I got to know these officers. And once again, we're talking about building relationships, right? I got to know these officers personally and some of their families. And I realized, oh, that's a good job it pays well, you know, then you have all the other factors of being a police officer. You're not sitting behind a desk. It's out in the community. You're, you're, you're moving around, you're doing things, particularly as a patrol officer, it's a dynamic profession. I mean, you know, you get to drive this, you know, fancy car and fast sometimes and lights and sirens. And, (laughs) you you know, so of course there's the lure of the whole cops and robbers. And you know, and that was cool as a young man. Now, once again, I'm you know more than two decades into my career, and, and those kind of things don't excite me as much anymore. <laughs> particularly as a supervisor going to be a commander, but early in my career, those those were exciting. You know, good pay, stable job, and I could really, well, I thought, be within the organization and impact the community in a positive way.
0: Another role I noted you had is the east anti-crime team and i noted you always wanted to work undercover narcotics street level so i don't know if those are the same thing anti-crime and narcotics
1: so they're two separate units at seattle pd and now currently we don't have anti-crime teams anymore we have uh, renamed that work group to the community resource group crg Mm -hmm. but back then in uh, early 2000s yes when i became police officer You know, I was really intrigued by undercover work. And early in my career, I had linked up with other investigators that were doing that work and said, hey, you know, I have questions about this. I want to get into this. Can you teach me? And, you know, very early in my career, I was able to start doing undercover work, buying drugs on street corners. And over the years, it just really progressed to doing larger cases and more complex cases undercover to the point where uh, somewhere in there, I had met some FBI agents and they had had learned of my work and said, hey, we'd love to have you as a task force officer with the FBI. And that was really when I was in narcotics as a narcotics detective and they said, okay, we would like you to do narcotic investigations, but high level narcotics investigations leading up to wiretaps and basically organized crime kind of narcotic based investigations. At the same time, I was also doing my own undercover cases. And so so it all kind of blended together that some of those cases I would do some undercover work. And then you know FBI said, Well, hey, you know, we have a, an undercover program for us. Would you be interested in going to that? Oh, absolutely. And so I went through the FBI's selection and, and ultimately their training. And you know, it was a very rigorous two-week training program where it's like a sleep deprivation, high stress. And put you in into uh, almost impossible situations uh, because as an FBI undercover, it's it's much different undercover assignment than it is being a local police officer. You know, walking out on Pine Street and and buying some drugs. It's a much different environment, and it was super rewarding. It was very challenging. It did all kind of cases of national terrorism, public corruption, of course, narcotics, money laundering. And my ten years spent with the FBI was. Super enjoyable, and it really added value to my time as a law enforcement. But it also opened a lot of doors because I had a really good mentor, or several mentors, at the FBI. One was the ASAC, one of the supervisors, was Steve Dean, and then my direct supervisor was Carolyn Woodbury, and they really helped open those doors in law enforcement, doing the cases I mentioned, but also it had a lot of access to. Other entities outside of law enforcement.
0: When you talk about the task force, too, we you obviously have some really interesting stories there. What I noted: traveling all over the country, international trips, high-level terrorism. You were posing as high-level drug dealers. You used cops to protect you.
1: Yeah, there was a, a particular case that I worked where the FBI undercover's were were posing as drug traffickers in a city, and essentially. We were introduced to police officers who we would pay to protect our drug loads. You know, was just an example of identifying officers who were just not following the rules of what they should be doing, right? And uh, unfortunately, it, that's part of the job. Is, is particularly you know, within the FBI's, it's public corruption, and that could be through police officers doing. You know things like that. You know, I've worked some cases with politicians and taking bribes and, and that sort of thing.
0: So there is a story that we talked about in the pre-interview that involved your having to investigate an officer who was accused of stealing narcotics.
1: You know, I think you're, you know talking, when it comes to police corruption, it was yeah because of my assignment with an FBI at the Seattle Police Department. I was assigned to do uh, police criminal cases. So of course we have OPA that in- investigates policy violations and in that sort of nature. But on occasion, there are allegations that a police officer is engaged in criminal activity. And uh, my assignment at the FBI and at the time assigned to the criminal intelligence unit, I was a lead detective when we received information about an officer that was likely stealing narcotics. And so as all of the you know, the the executive teams, the, the the bosses essentially at the police department came together and decided you know what would be the next steps it was decided to do a sting operation on this officer and essentially present a bag of controlled narcotics in front of him and you know we believed that these allegations weren't true these initial allegations weren't true but we had to to do something to show it was either true or not true and so we recreated the situations in which the allegations originated from and that was we took a, an amount of narcotics and, of course, documented the amount of narcotics that we took and used a, a different undercover officer and presented those drugs to the officer th- through the uh, undercover officer who said, hey, I found this bag. You know, I just I don't want to deal with it. I just want to turn it into law enforcement. And our belief was that the officer would take the bag and turn it into evidence you know, per the policy and it, w- it would be no big deal. And, and we're going back to doing normal criminal investigations. Unfortunately, throughout the day, we determined that the officer did not turn that bag into evidence and at the end of his shift, we were still keeping an eye on him in in the narcotics and I had watched him go behind a school and start using some of the narcotics while he was still in uniform and in the police car. And of course, immediately reporting back to the bosses, like, hey, this is my observation. And none of us ever believed that that was going to be the case. It was a devastating time just to begin with is like, oh my goodness, what do we do now? And of course the decision was to uh, stop and arrest him for this incident. The executive teams uh, dealt with the employment issue and, you know, ultimately within several hours were able to, to get him home. And, you know, he made the unfortunate decision after going home and, and saying goodbye to his wife and kids to then leave his home and commit suicide. Although this incident happened more than ten years ago, to this day it's uh, incredibly devastating. Uh, it impacts me, you know, almost on a daily basis that you know I was involved in, in this incident where this officer ultimately decided to take his life. And you know, I I look back on it you know, and think, man, is there is there a, a better way that we could have handled that? I will say, however, as a result of that, at the Seattle Police Department, we remember incidents like that, and you know, this kind of moves into where now at the police department we are much more focused on wellness. You know, within a year or so after that incident, I had another criminal investigation where we had to arrest another police officer, and although you know the, the circumstances were different in the second incident, it was clear that this officer had addiction problems uh, that were not related to substance abuse addiction, uh, other addiction problems. And so I had coordinated with his defense attorney Had coordinated with uh, wellness groups at the time, uh, Safe Call Now, which is now we use code four to say, hey, listen, this is what's going to happen to this officer. But as soon as we're done with the criminal aspect of it, we want to turn him over to the wellness piece of it and get him the help that he needs. And ultimately, after all of the the, the court case and all that was all done, the officer came up to me and said, Brandon, thank you for doing what you, you did. Had you not, you know, at the, at the worst time, all this kicked off, you know, I was thinking about committing suicide as well. And so this is just an example of why at the police department we have to really be focused on taking care of our people, identifying when someone is not doing good and realizing what it's going to take to get them better. And I think we're much better at that now.
0: Yeah. I know that this one gets you. Yeah. And so I appreciate your sharing that. You thought you would prove that he was not using. I guess the hard parts are his suicide, of course, but also that he somehow felt the need to use. Right. I mean, it's, the whole piece is what's upsetting
1: absolutely i mean this this officer uh, who you know took his life he was very well respected within the police department he was very well respected on the street i would say you know known gang members known drug sellers i mean some of the people that the police department is dealing with on a regular basis at a high level or i say at a frequent level they they knew this officer no one in the police department thought or believe that there was anything going on uh, with him like this, which is why when we received these reports and allegations, we're like, okay, let's, you know, the executive team decided, okay, let's do the sting operation and and, and put this to rest. And uh, so it was unfortunate, uh, the result, but it was just unknown to everyone else that he was dealing with some other demons. And, you know, that's why it's so important for us in today's environment to really to look left and right, meaning that partners need to look at each other and say, "Hey, is my partner doing okay?" Supervisors need to be doing the same thing. Is the people that work for me doing doing okay? And if not, what can I do to to make that better? Because you know, unfortunately, you know, I had a, a a second major event like that where a subordinate of mine uh, committed suicide, and mm. it was as a result of there was a few of us that were FBI undercovers that were Seattle Police Department. And I had transitioned into supervision. And so this, this officer I, I had been working shoulder to shoulder with as an undercover, and then I became his supervisor. And after a, um, a large event that we did in another state, uh, once again, a, a big undercover case, I started to see some some concerning behavior of more of like paranoia and in those things. And so Drawing on my experience of what happened to the first officer and the second officer, I said, well, okay, wait a second, <laughs> time out. You know, We need to sit down and really find out what's going on. I took the opportunity to engage his wife. I think that was one of the big missteps we had in the first officer is that we didn't engage his wife. And so this undercover officer, I engaged his wife. She had some concerns uh, that was going on. She very much appreciated my engagement with them. And so, working with his wife, his clergy, their family counselor, I was able to get him a significant amount of time off, and then also reduce his workload. And he was the kind of guy that would just take on all of the work, <laughs> whoever said they needed him. And at that time, he was one of the few undercover[s] uh, in the nation that was doing the kind of work that he was doing, and and doing it very well. And so, case agents from all over the country were. Said, "Hey, I need you. I need you. I need you." And so he had a very difficult time saying no. And so you know, I did that for him. Say, "Hey, guys, nope." You know, you know we for a while we took him out of the mix, and then when we were able to get him back in, really regulate how much he would actually do. And then about a year and a half after all of that, you know, he still was having his his struggles and mental health issues. A lot of it was around his work, and ultimately took his life. And it wasn't I. Oh. I was not. charge of him at the time but still a friend of his and and someone that i know he looked up to me uh, greatly and so when i received that call that day it was just another devastating uh, moment in my career and which is why today i am so um, focused on wellness for our employees, you know, particularly now I'm in, you know, of course, internet crimes against children and my employees, my detectives are viewing just some of the worst of the worst images, right? Yes. And so when I got to that assignment, I had an opportunity to bring in a forensic psychologist into our workspace and she works with us every single day. I did that and really encourage our detectives to, to meet with that doctor and And, you know, we do wellness events, you know, at least once a quarter, all the things that we can do to make sure I can make sure that these employees in in ICAC who are, you know, really being traumatized on a daily basis, you know, they have a flexible work schedule, are encouraged to work out before, during, or after work, uh, because there's so many studies about, you know, fitness helps that stress, right? It's just all those little wellness pieces that we can do to help those employees. It's a, a super important to me because of the significant incidents that I've had.
0: I do want to get in. This is a perfect time to segue into that. Before I leave, do you, narcotics, do you think it's the nature of working undercover? Is there something that working undercover messes with your head? Is it the, or is it the proximity and accessibility of drugs? Or is it just an individual Case by case. I
1: think it's an individual case by case, but I do think it, it takes a, a very special personality to do undercover work in general. But then the kind of cases that the three of us were doing, particularly the other two individuals that were doing this work, they were leaving law enforcement. You know, so they were they weren't coming into police departments, they were never wearing a uniform, and then they would be living with the bad guys for periods of time. And so I think that really, you know, it has a a potential adverse effect on your personality and who you are and how you identify yourself and in how you view the world, because now you're living with what we would call bad guys or, you know, people who are are committing criminal acts and you're gathering that intelligence, but at the same time you're befriending them. And you although they may be engaged in criminal activity, I will tell you some of these guys are actually good guys. They're 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 family men. They're they're faith followers, and they just so happen like this is how they're going to get the money that they need for their family. And it's and it's not what we would say in in the in the correct manner or a legal manner, uh, but they're generally good people. Like man, I actually like this guy, and so. Mm. To play both worlds of being in law enforcement, also being in you know, undercover when you're doing it at that level
0: yeah.
1: uh, can be challenging. And in addition to that is just, you know, po- putting more on your plate and having the ability to, to say no uh, can be challenging when you know that yeah. you're doing a really good job and you, know, you can save lives. And then the kind of work that we were doing is, is not like, you know, the street level drug stuff. It was like national terrorism, domestic terrorism kind of cases. And so... These are people who are intent on hurting hundreds, if not thousands of lives in a single incident, and, and to stop that is, is rewarding, and you want to keep that work going. It's very difficult to, to justify, oh, I'm sorry, I'm a little busy, Case agent. I'm not going to do this for you because I'm doing another four of them, and but this new one is just as important, and so it it's, can be a challenge.
0: When you're undercover, do you have to use drugs in front of these folks to look legit? No, no, no. Okay.
1: Um, when you're, when you're undercover, and you know, I'm a trainer now, uh, for undercover officers, we train officers on what to say and what to do. Okay, when situations arise where we don't, you know, where it's not appropriate for okay. people to be using drugs and committing crimes. Now, of course, you know, if your life is in danger, that's that's a, a different situation, but. That's a part of the the training and tips and techniques that I'm giving officers.
0: Okay, I I just not succeed. (laughs) Um, And so we've talked about the sad parts of the story. Before we leave, do you want to talk any big gets, big takedowns, big anti-terrorism that you stopped that you're allowed to talk about? Let's tell a success story that you're proud of.
1: Absolutely. I want to say, I want to get the dates right, but 2011, 2012, there were a couple of guys in Seattle who had expressed specific interest in attacking the Seattle Military Entrance Processing Station. At the time, that was located at a location off of East Marginal Way, and it was a federal center, and it still is a federal center. And it's essentially where new people who have enlisted into the military, where they go to process the medical and and, and go through all those steps uh, before they ship out to boot camp. In addition to that, there's other federal law enforcement that was working out of there. There are other federal employees working out of there. And they had a daycare for those employees. And these two individuals, because of their religious beliefs, identified what we called MEPS, Military Entrance Processing Station, identified Seattle MEPS as a location where they believed if they attacked and launched a multifaceted attack on the Mep station, that that could slow the processing of more military members getting into the military and then being shipped overseas, particularly Afghanistan and Iraq, and what they believed was murdering Muslims over there. It was rewarding that you know, I was involved in that. Now, I wasn't an undercover involved in that, but I was a investigator, very much involved in, in that with the FBI. There was two of us from Seattle PD, two from FBI that were the active investigators and identifying these guys through another cooperator. And we really stopped something that could have been incredibly devastating to law enforcement. I say that now, and it's funny when I talk to new officers in the police department. And at the time, it, it was a pretty big incident, pretty big event. And once again, just being humbled, you know, I'll mention you know these kind of things to like new police officers, like, did you know about the 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 Seattle Meps investigation where we stopped that? They're like you know, we don't know about that. We don't know about your work. And Brandon, you're not that special. <laughs> so it's, it's it's really humbling. But at the time, it, it was super rewarding. And I look back on it as one of the many cases and investigations that I've been involved in that I, I believe, you know, had a significant impact.
0: That's great. Thank you for that. So you mentioned Internet Crimes Against Children, which is really, I think, among the most important work you can do. I know a little bit about it, having interviewed one of your colleagues, although she she probably preceded you, but 13 years ago, I interviewed a detective. It stuck with me. I mean, what you guys have to deal with, as you were referencing, taking such care of your detectives, because what they're seeing and what they're doing, if I could just read one line from my conversation with her, and then I want to get into what ICAC is and what you do, but... And let me see if you agree that she said to put this in perspective, the sexual assault unit gets their victims after the act. We get our victims in the act of the abuse, and it's documented in pictures and video. So basically, you're seeing the crime. Absolutely. I I think that's unique to this work.
1: It is. That is a really good line. I, I like that.
0: So tell me what Internet Crimes Against Children is.
1: Internet Crime Against Children, also known as ICAC. This is an investigative arm of law enforcement that are really identifying some of our most vulnerable community members, and that's our children. And it's not just our children, but it's our children at their most vulnerable moment in their lives when someone... oftentimes, uh, someone close to them is sexually abusing them, who is exploiting them. ICAC is all designed about identifying those individuals who are exploiting the the children, who are grooming our children, and who are intent on causing harm uh, to our children. This is something I never would have thought that I would be doing in you know, three years ago. I had an opportunity to come and to this unit, the commander at the time is someone I had known for years and said, Brandon, I would really like to use your investigative experience here. And, and I tell people all the time it was, it was funny cause I had spent a number of years in, in different investigative units and I thought, okay, ICAC is just another investigative area. I'll be fine. Not, not a big deal. And I get here and I was like, Whoa, one, there's a huge learning curve because it's a technology-based uh, behind these investigations because it's occurring online. And so you're working with electronic service providers like Google and Facebook and Instagram and all of those social media platforms and internet service providers. You know, So you have that aspect of it. But you also have the actual material that you're investigating and ensuring that We're capturing that in a correct way, but in a way that uh, doesn't continue to traumatize the victim, but also in a way that as much as possible, doesn't traumatize the investigator. I'm super passionate about it. It has been a wonderful three years in the sense that what I've learned and what I've been involved in has been some of the most rewarding work. Although it's hard to watch those images and be involved in those investigations, it is Super rewarding when we go out and we serve a search warrant, and the kid that we saw on an image, we have an opportunity to see in the home and stop that abuse. You know, and, and there is no more rewarding incident than something like that.
0: And so it's the exploitation of children that is then distributed on the internet.
1: Oftentimes, what it is is that. Those images and videos, the act oftentimes has occurred, okay. and the, the image is, is captured, and then it's uploaded back into the internet. Okay? okay. And although that particular incident has occurred, it does not by any means show that the incidents are ongoing, and typically they are ongoing. Even for the individual who doesn't have access to children, or is we show only Uploading images. So he's viewing, he or she, and women are involved in this too. He or she is uploading child exploitation images. So that's one of the things that our investigation shows that, okay, somebody from this residence is uploading images to the internet. Okay. And although we're not sure if that victim from those images are in that home, and oftentimes that's not the case, they're uploading images of victims being abused children being abused who are not in that home, but we need to go inside that home and see if that predator does have access to children because if they do uh, studies, many studies have shown that upwards of 70% of those individuals who do have access to children will physically harm children.
0: And so the crime is both the assault and the dissemination.
1: That's correct. Well, not just the dissemination, but the possession of that material. Mm -hmm. And I I would note that we no longer call it child pornography Mm -hmm. because there is pornography that's legal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Adult pornography is 100% legal. And to try to say that child pornography has some sort of connotation that it may be portion of it may be legal and it's not. Mm -hmm. So instead, we call this child sexual abuse material, child sexual exploitation material, CSAM or CSIM. Okay. So we don't call it child pornography anymore or CP. And we do it through a variety of means. And as through the images that are uploaded and then reported to the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, and then that's reported to us in ICAC. And Seattle Police Department is the lead agency for the statewide task force, And so as the supervisor, I get all the reports for the state. I determine, okay, is there a crime occurring or not? And then what jurisdiction needs to investigate it? And we call those cyber tips. So that's one way of investigating these. The others are being a little more proactive where we have special computers and investigators with these computers who are on peer-to-peer networks where other individuals are sharing files across these platforms, and the law enforcement computer will, will get in inside of that network and identify the IP addresses of individuals who are possessing and also distributing those images. And so we'll do those proactive investigations. And the other proactive investigation we do is online chat operations, where we pose as either underage children, or we pose as adults who are offering up children for sex and doing it in a manner in which we aren't entrapping someone to do something they wouldn't have normally have thought of, not implanting that idea in their mind. And and we do these online and proactive investigations that way.
0: So that part I understand because, you know, there's, They used to do to catch a predator or whatever that TV show was. So this is an instance where an officer might be pretending to, and without entrapment, pretending to be, let's say, a 13-year-old girl and the suspect, subject, predator, that interaction is where you catch them. When yes. they're, they're saying, you know, send me videos of yourself, send me pictures of you, that kind of scenario.
1: That kind of scenario. And, and more specifically, they know that through the statements from the officer posing as a 13 year old girl, that they believe that this person they're chatting with is a 13 year old girl. And then they uh, will have conversation about the specific sex acts that they intend to have with that 13 year old girl. Up to and leading to a planned meeting where they think they're going to meet the thirteen year old girl and instead they they get to meet me. <laughs> <laughs> that would be attempt rape of a child.
0: okay. In instances where you have adults who are abusing children in you know ways that we will not describe, you know they tape it and then they upload it to the internet. How do you find? Them, I think that's what you were talking about with IP addresses.
1: So yeah, um, one way is I mentioned the peer-to-peer networks. So those images are being shared across a, a network of known uh, CSAM material. The other way is through electronic service providers. So right, you, you said know, that. If, yeah, so if you're on your phone, you're on your computer, and you save this these images, not just not if you're like surfing the web and you end up in this black hole of disgustingness and you're just clicking images. That's not, that's not what gets people in, in trouble. That doesn't, that doesn't trigger this. What triggers it is you're, you're doing that, but you're also then saving that to your device and then it uploads back into the device. So for instance, uh, your cell phone, most of us are going to have some sort of Google account on your cell phone. And if you are syncing your Google photos, To your account, Google, like all of these platforms, uh, are required by federal law to have some sort of process in place to detect uh, potential CSAM material. And when that happens, they're required to report it to law enforcement. And uh, the the process, what I mentioned earlier, is the electronic service provider, like a Google, would then report that to the National Center for Missing Exploited Children, Mick. And then NICMIC does an analytical report and then forwards it to the appropriate law enforcement task force.
0: And then how do you catch the person?
1: So from there, it's writing search warrants and you know, conducting an investigation and you know, using online tools and uh, what we call open source intelligence gathering and capturing. A wide variety of investigative techniques, uh, mainly through those search warrants back to the electronic service provider, Mm. And the internet service provider to put the pieces of the puzzle back together to say, okay, this device was accessing the internet at this time when they were uploading this CSAM material. And then from there we have to prove not only did this device do all those things on the internet, now it's who was holding that device when it happened. And so there's a lot of a lot of aspects of the investigation to put together and show. Of the device that was doing the bad uploads, but also the person behind the device was doing the bad uploads. And then uh, from there, completing our investigation and identifying who did that and where they're at. And oftentimes leading up to an interview of that person and really to determine if they have uh, children in the home.
0: Okay. So, you know, when I talked to the detective, this was 13 years ago, and obviously. Technology has changed, but when you talk about protecting your detectives, one of the things that's so hard about this job is you have to—I believe—you have to watch these videos and you have mm-hmm. to see what's being done to these children. Mm-hmm. Correct.
1: Correct. Part of that is you know the report comes from Nick Mick, and the report also includes the images and images and/or videos, and so to determine that you have a crime and, and that you know probable cause exist uh, for these crimes as the investigator and, you, know, you do have to watch those images and and detail those images to the judge to show that uh, we do have a crime that we're investigating.
0: So to go back to the quote from the detective which I opened this section with, I want to repeat that and add to it. So again she said to put this in perspective, The Sexual Assault Unit gets their victims after the act, which of course is not to diminish the Sexual Assault Unit. We get our victims in the act of the abuse, and it's documented in pictures. That's very difficult. What you see is upsetting. She went on to say, the worst for me, keep in mind it's all bad, but the worst for me are videos. And I never, unless I absolutely have to, and I will do it only once, if I have to, is turn on the volume because it's very, very difficult.
1: Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the wellness pieces that we use here with our ICAC investigators. And as we're training Washington state ICAC investigators across the state, you know, there, there's a series of, of things that we want them to do, to, to do their cases. There's a series of, of tips that we give them about wellness. And at the top of that list, to that investigator's point, the top of that list, it says if you're watching a video, mute the audio. You know, you, you can get a, a good understanding of the crime that's occurring from watching a video, but the audio and listening to what is occurring there. I mean, you know, I'm not going to you know describe that, but you can only imagine some of the audio behind that. In particular, if you have kids it can be very traumatizing you know to the investigator you're watching thousands and thousands of those videos throughout your iCAT career there might be a time where a particular video like what this investigator mentioned there might be a time that you need to listen to the audio once you're looking for clues like is the victim saying no daddy so that's a clue right that it's it's you know a father doing that right or other audible clues and so you might do that but Generally speaking, keep the audio off, and that helps reduce as much as possible some of the trauma to the investigators. All
0: right. I asked her, as naive as I was, (laughs) I said to her, you know, part of me wants to ask you to show me this so I can understand. And she said, no, 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 no. She said, once you've seen it, you cannot unsee it.
1: No, when I train new investigators, and I just had this because... I'm actually getting ready to get promoted to lieutenant. And so I'm training up the new detective sergeant coming into ICAC. And as I met with this potentially new sergeant, and as I do with everyone, I say, okay, you are about to open up a world that you'll never be able to come back from. I tell everyone, I says, okay, before we open this first image, I want you to understand what you're about to see, but also more importantly, after you see it, if this is something that you cannot sustain. It is okay to say no. I don't want to do this anymore, and that's what's really important for people in, in ICAC and supervising ICAC to understand: is that when an ICAC investigator comes to a superior and says, "I've had it. I can't do it anymore," for them to verbalize that, that means they are what I mean. Their cup is full. They, they cannot take any more of it, and it's important for the wellness piece for us uh, supervisors and managers to get them out of that line of work, but not only to get them out of that line of work, but to also maintain any wellness uh, components. Like for instance, you know, I've had a couple detectives transfer from the ICAC unit and we do have a wellness piece where we have the forensic psychologist in the office, like I mentioned. So although they're not working in the office every day, I let them know like, hey, you still have access to the doctor. You know, we are still encouraged to to see a therapist if that's, you know, what you choose to do. And of course, all that is confidential, even though the 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 doctor's in our office and I'm the supervisor, it is one hundred percent confidential because one, it's the law and two, it's the right thing to do.
0: Lest people think that these are just creeps, you know, creepy guys in the basement when the shades drawn. You know, these are all types of people in society that are committing these crimes.
1: Yeah, all, all walks of life. I mean, there's this, there's a stereotype of it's the creepy guy, you know, sitting in the basement. And like you mentioned, but really, my investigations show that it is all walks of life. You know, we've had high level business executives. We've had teachers. We had a firefighter. Oof. So it is all walks of life, all races, all ages. Uh, oftentimes I say, you know, 18 to 80, it, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's everyone. And it's men and women, one of the uh, most prolific cases that um, had wrapped up by the time I got to the unit, but we've had follow-up investigation. And since then, a conviction is a female mother who was abusing her son. Mm-hmm. And those images were uploaded. And you know, so that was a very difficult investigation uh, for all the all the detectives that were a part of that. Uh, but it is it is everyone.
0: Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, but once those images are out there, they're out there. So that victim may be subjected to repeat trauma if they find that image is still out there.
1: Absolutely, yeah, that is correct. You know, we do a annual ICAC conference that uh, Seattle Police Department hosts every single year, first week of October at Microsoft and Redmond. It is a free training event. It's not just for ICAC. It's It covers ICAC, but it's also, I mean, now it's called the ICAC and Technology Conference. I mentioned this because it's available to all law enforcement. And as a part of this, we bring in victims, um, survivors that have been a part of this. And one of the things that they comment on is that, yes, maybe now the actual acts of abuse are over, but the the victimization and the trauma continues to happen because those images are out there. Right. Now, NECMEC does have a portion of their services uh, called org that helps victims and survivors try to identify with those websites and get images removed. But you know, with, as we know with the internet, anytime anything is up there, it's oftentimes up there for good. Right. And you know, we do our best to try to get that removed.
0: The other thing is... Th- people may not realize, I certainly didn't when I did this interview 13 years ago, is that this also includes your naive teenager, who let's say, you're an 18 year old, the story she told me, 18 year old male with a 15 year old girlfriend, she sends him naked pictures of herself, then she, he gets mad at her, she breaks up with him, and then he distributes that. That is a felony. Correct?
1: Absolutely. In that situation, you know, that you know, ex-boyfriend who's distributing those images you know, could be charged for uh, distribution of that material. We try to use discretion in those investigations to uh, determine, you know, was this person really trying to cause that level of harm or, you know, is this a bad breakup? In that kind of situation. But, you know, it is something that we will intervene on. And at the very least, having conversations with, you know, that ex-boyfriend in that situation uh, to get them to stop or take images down um, or oftentimes with uh, parents, mm. you know, when it comes to like teenage breakups and re- revenge porn and right, right. And all right. That. I just also want to know, you know, one of the biggest issues when it comes to teens that we're dealing with right now is, is not what new people normally think of is, is that you've got the gross guy who's attempting to lure our young women online. And and yes, that does happen. But one of the biggest issues that we're dealing with today is a huge scam that is originating out of West Africa, where on platforms like Snapchat, Instagram, our young teenage boys are being friend requested by fake female accounts. And these and these female accounts are about the age of the teenage boy. Oftentimes, they will use the teenage boy's known location on their social media. And the fake account scammers are saying that they're from a nearby city or they're from their city. And the, the scammers will immediately send a, a nude photo of the girl. And she says, oh, this is me you know, now send me photos and videos of you. Mm. And as soon as the teenage boy falls for that, you know, accepts the friend request, they have a quick conversation and then sends a photo video of themselves nude within seconds. The very next communication is now I've got that. Oh. Um, you owe me money. Oh. And, you know, so send me gift cards, send me PayPal money, send me Cash App money. And if you don't do so, I'm going to ruin your life and I'm going to post this to your social media accounts. And all of that. And so right now, that's a huge problem that we're having across the country. And of course, FBI, and HSI know about it. We're working with them and the legal attaches in those originating countries. But it is a problem. And because it's happening internationally, it is difficult to investigate. And so my push is to educate all parties in this is would be the teenage boy, getting that message out to the teenage boys, not to accept these friend requests, not to share your images. And of course, to schools and teachers and administrators and the counselors and also the parents. So they understand, you know, if something is happening with your teenager their demeanor and everything around them seems just totally off. And I, you listen, I get it. I have teenagers, and it seems like every single day they're off. <laughs> but <Right>. um, <laughs> we know our kids. Where something you know yeah. drastically has changed, look in their phone. Yeah. And teenagers don't have privacy uh, expectation of privacy, right? So look in their phone, and and oftentimes you see what's going on. The tragedy of this is that we've had several of these incidents occur across the country. Luckily, nothing local, but across the country where this happens to teenage boys, they get so ashamed, and right. take their lives. Right. And you know, we want to get the word out not to go down this path when you get these friend requests from a stranger, and then you know start sharing these images because you know I always have to tell these teenage boys, like, listen, young man. Nobody wants to see you nude, okay? So it's all a scam. They don't. They just don't. Um, and so, uh, don't fall for it. Yeah.
0: Yes, in this interview, she said the uh, you don't have privacy until you're 18, and that doesn't mean. I mean, yes, when you're in the bathroom. Yes, when you're in the shower. Yes, when you're dressing. But I can go in your phone, and I will go on your computer. And you know, you mentioned the international aspect of this. I do want to make sure that people listening understand that SPD's ICAC task force. You are responsible for all Washington state cyber tips right. right so yes. you, it's it's not just Seattle you are
1: when I say when I say responsible essentially we are the the hub the clearinghouse for all the cyber tips that come in from Nick and then you know, we have more than a hundred law enforcement agencies across the state that are on our task force that we lead up and help fund across the state and train all the investigators. And so the cyber tip then goes to the appropriate law enforcement agency where the perpetrator lives or where the IP address resolves to. We send it on to them to do the investigation. So Seattle Police Department is not doing all of Washington state, uh, mm. but we we are the hub, like I said, in the clearinghouse for those cyber tips and get those forwarded to the appropriate law enforcement agency in the state.
0: But it is an international crime as you, or an international issue, as you just identified. So do you... Get involved at an international level. Does Interpol get involved? I mean,
1: part of the task force is uh, federal law enforcement. So we have FBI and HSI on our task force. Not only on our on our task force, but they are fully integrated with us. Pretty much every single warrant that we do, we'll have a federal investigator from FBI or HSI with us. And for these international investigations. Of course, uh, those two law enforcement agencies have jurisdiction outside of the U.S. as well and work with the local law enforcement in those countries if there's a cooperative agreement and you know, to investigate those crimes. So we work closely with them.
0: Now, you said funding education. Who's funding? SPD or?
1: So we receive funding from two sources. We have federal grant fundings that okay. all 61 ICAC task forces in the state receive and so we, we receive that federal funding. We are one of the few states in the country, however, we're super fortunate that our state legislators have understood the importance of this work and also provide uh, funding for this work as well to enhance that federal grant funding. And okay. it's important because a lot of the software that we use, like the forensic software and the forensic tools, you know, those aren't things that are provided by the police department those are third party vendors and those tools are very expensive to use and and so it's it's crucial that we have that funding
0: you also get some funding from Seattle Police Foundation
1: We do get some funding from the Seattle Police Foundation you know they are our funding partners for our annual conference and the conference is free for you know the 800 plus attendees so the donations and the sponsorships that we get to put on that conference, usually from big tech companies, and of course runs through the foundation. And so, you know, the ICAC and the Seattle Police Foundation have a very close working relationship.
0: So, if you're an individual out there, this is not without. You know, there is something you can do. So, I'll put that information uh, in the episode notes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if uh, you know, if you were so inclined, is if you, you know, if you wanted to, to donate to this cause. That would be to provide those funds to the Seattle Police Foundation and identify with the foundation that you know we would like to earmark this money for ICAC investigations, right. and we you know very much appreciate that.
0: Well, to close out this section, you know, I know it's very difficult work, but also very rewarding when you know the kind of person you're putting away.
1: Yes, it is super rewarding for us in law enforcement who are continuing. The resolve of not only ICAC work, but uh, everything else that is happening in our communities with violent crime, and you know some of the issues that we've talked about here, and you know, many other issues that we are continuing to, you know, partner with everyone we can in the community uh, to really show that the police department is here. You are a part of the community,
0: Brandon. You know, looking back on it all, how would you describe the rewards?
1: You know, I would describe the rewards as tremendous. I came from very humble beginnings. Essentially, it was just my mom and sister and, and I. So my beginnings were, were very humbling and, and, and basic to the point where I'm at now, more than two decades later, in all the things that I've been involved with the Seattle Police Department. And I, I believe, you know, some very significant positive impacts and in, in relationships that I've built over, over the year. You know, my career, I've been, you know, 100% blessed. But you know what, Abby, I'm still not done. You know, I still have a number of years left. I'm getting ready to go into command and I'm super excited about taking my experience, but also my drive and passion for people and for the people that work I work around, for the people that work for me, but also for community members that I engage with. I am passionate about law enforcement. I'm passionate about ensuring that, you know, we serve In a way that really suits every single community the best, and so I'm not done, and I still I got a a, a lot more left in me, and I'm super excited what the future holds.
0: Yeah, so that little kid that went with his mom to the what was it
1: the oh yeah the kingdom yeah 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 my mom was working at the kingdom, and that's where you know that's where I began all this interacting with law enforcement, and so that was that was early nineties to where we're at today is it has been an incredible ride I never would have guessed that I would had the opportunities that I've had. And I don't take that for granted. And it's, it's because of the people who have been around me, who have mentored me, who have taken care of me and shown me the way that now it's my turn to give back and ensure that, you know, I leave a better mark than how I found it.
0: Yeah. And so what would you tell that little boy? (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I would, I would tell a little boy, stay positive. Yeah. You know, it's, it hasn't been without some bumpy roads, but keep the smile on your face, st- keep driving forward, keep learning, keep growing. And remember what that light at the end of the tunnel may look like. And it may not be visible at different times throughout your path. That light may not be visible, but it is there. And it, and it shines bright at the end and it shines as bright as you want it to shine it, because of how much you pour into something is what you'll get out of it. And I, I fully believe that. And so that's what I would tell that little boy is keep driving forward, keep staying positive, and you'll be rewarded at the end.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I would say you are a bright light. Oh, thank you. You are a bright light. Right, congratulations on becoming lieutenant. I know that mentorship and leadership is important to you, so maybe that'll be our next conversation. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, absolutely. So thank you for what you do. Thank you for your commitment to law enforcement. Thank you for saving us from the bad guys. <laughs> thank you for your time today, Brandon.
1: Oh, thank you, Abby. I appreciate it.
0: As lieutenant, Brandon is now the commander of the Relational Policing Innovation Team. Congratulations, Brandon. Your ongoing leadership will continue to be a great asset to the Seattle Police Department. Before I close out the show today, I want to thank a couple of you who have recently written five-star reviews for me on Apple Podcasts. I want to give a big shout out to ATO Bridging the Divide. The headline is, thanks for the support. And the review reads, just started listening and have to say thank you for all the support on showing perspectives and allowing a voice for your guests. I am an active LEO in Texas. I greatly appreciate your show. Keep it up. Thank you. ATO Bridging the Divide, thank you. Thank you for the review. Thank you for listening. And thank you for being a police officer. And there's a review from Eric2247. His headline is Great Listen. And the review reads, interesting and thoughtful conversation between a citizen and police officers does a great job at giving citizens a peek behind the curtain as to what being a cop looks like. Thank you, Eric. If you want to add your five-star review to Apple Podcasts, please do, especially to drown out that one guy who was anti-police and had to say so on my podcast and give me one star. Your reviews help a lot, and they mean a lot to me. Thanks to all of you, as always, for listening. Until next time.